camera operating is hands down the best job on set. You're intimately involved with every aspect of, uh, of, of making the film. You're, you're dealing with the director, you're dealing with the actors, with the cinematographer, you're, you're front and center, you're creatively involved. It's your choices that are, that are, that are being seen by everyone. It's your creative choices and your artistic input. And there cannot be anything more rewarding than that. You know, you, you've got so many moving parts in a movie and so many people are doing so many things, you know, towards one central element and that is the frame. And everyone's attention is focused on what's in the frame and, and you're controlling that. And action. Welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast. My name is Derek Stetler. I'm a writer and filmmaker, and I'm fascinated by how the stories I love are brought to life on the screen. Join me for conversations with the artists behind the camera. Discover how they made their careers happen, hear about their creative process, and learn how they make the shots that make us say, wait, how did they do that? I hope this podcast gives you a greater appreciation for what the crew behind the scenes actually do, and maybe learn a few of their secrets to help you in your craft whether you're a filmmaker or you just love films. And if you like what you hear, please share and subscribe. In this premiere episode, I'm speaking with camera operator Colin Anderson, SOC. This year, he's being honored by the Society of Camera Operators with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Just take a look at his resume and you'll see why. He's been behind the camera on many notable films, including There Will Be Blood, The Master, Syriana, the first two Iron Man films, the Town, the Martin Scorsese film Silence, as well as every one of J.J. Abrams' films, including his most recent, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny. had the pleasure of joining Colin at his home in Los Angeles. Naturally, we discussed Star Wars, but we also talked about his career, his perspective on the craft, and what he's learned from the people he's worked with. Take a listen. So, hi Colin, thank you so much for inviting me into your home to speak with me. You have now, um, a guest at the front door. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> kitchen door. Kitchen door. Um, so this year you are being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Camera Operators. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So you have um, an incredible career working with incredible directors across the years. And I want to be sure we discuss, you know, how your career began and what you've uh, experienced. Um, but first, I, I want to know what it takes 
from your personal perspective to operate at the level that you do, what makes a great operator? Well, it's uh, not the easiest question to answer because there's so many facets to camera operating and um, I'm not sure there is one or two particular talents or, or, or things that you can do that make you a, a good operator. Um, I think what's extremely important is personality. Um, you have to be you have to be someone that people can get along with on set. You you're a diplomat. You're a mediator. You 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 often, to a small extent, running the set. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of people, a lot of different personalities, and um, I think it's important to to try and lead the set um, with humor, with good spirits, and you, in my experience, you always get so much more out of people when, when, when you ask nicely and you, there's, you know, there's, there's a, there's, there's a good energy around. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people that are really good operators that, you know, that tend to be a bit bristly or, or, or aggressive about certain mm. things. And, um, you know, I often think to myself, wow, you know, if someone's going to pick up the phone and call you for a job, you know, they, they could call X or they could call Y, you know, if X is the same as Y, but X is a, is, is easier to get along with, they're the ones that didn't get the, mm. get the call and not, and not the other guy. Um, so I think personality does play a large role in, in, uh, whether you get a job or not. Mm -hmm. Describing how to be a good operator is, is, is hard as well for me because I find so much of what I do is instinctual. I don't think you can necessarily learn camera operating. It's, uh, it comes from a, from a feel, what feels right, what doesn't feel right to you. You know, sure, we often get the benefit of rehearsals. So, you know, the first couple of rehearsals are often bad, you know, and you, and you learn, you know, what to do. Uh, you know, if you're doing a whip pan, Working with JJ, you do a lot of whip pans. Right, of course. Uh, you, you know, you would obviously rehearse that three or four or five times before you before you roll, just to sort of try and set that into your muscle memory. Um, but um, you can't really learn too many things. You know, there's there's little tricks of the trade. You know that you pick up over the years by you know having come up through the ranks, watching. You know, when you're a first AC, watching other operators that you that you're assisting uh you know just how you position yourself on the dolly you know just um how you set up your head you know but a lot of it is also so personal mm -hmm. you know and you, by head you mean the camera head you yeah. the camera head yeah yeah um i do a lot of work with robert ellsworth and mm -hmm. he um he's an amazingly good operator um you know one of the best i've seen yet he'll often have his um geared head set at um you know at number three you know on the speed mm -hmm. and uh and that uh that stuns me because i can't do that at all you know i i, I go to i go to third gear mm -hmm. maybe once a year interesting uh, where robert does that all the time you know so so he's not wrong mm -hmm. i'm not wrong you know it's just uh it's just a feel and um and and a personal preference so for in that example, what um, what about a three doesn't feel right to you? 
it's just too responsive for me. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, if the, the slightest movement of your hand, you know, will move the frame. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, maybe I'm not subtle enough for it. I don't know, but I, I just, uh, you know, I can't do that. You right. know, using a fluid head, a lot of guys have an extremely light fluid. Mm-hmm light resistance mm-hmm. uh which once again is not my personal preference mm-hmm. uh i like i like it you know to be fairly stiff okay um but uh but you know that's there's not a right or wrong answer there i don't think good well that shows that to to even get to your level you don't have to have the steadiest hand in the in the business <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it's, yeah it's about yeah. more than just if you can you know make the camera smooth and if you can make the shots absolutely absolutely precise right you know on call right 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 i think communication is also um tremendously important in camera operating you know you're communicating with your dolly grip who who is the the operator's best friend and one of the unsung heroes on the set you know they in my opinion they um they are our equals in terms of operating you know so often the dolly grip is 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 doing all the all the the heavy lifting and mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in the physical sense I mean that in in the way that you know he'll put the camera where 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 it needs to be um, through his own skill and mm-hmm. instinct because in many and cases they're the ones actually moving the camera they're the ones that are moving it yeah. and often we're just along for the ride mm-hmm. and uh, and having an having a a great dolly grip is absolutely invaluable because they can absolutely bury you. Um, you know, it's uh, or lift you up, or lift you yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, you know, uh, a great dolly grip can make an make an average camera operator look good, whereas a a great camera operator cannot really make a great dolly grip look good. <laughs> mm. And as um, a camera operator, do you have a say in who your dolly grip is on projects, or are you assigned someone? Often. Often you're assigned. Um, in a perfect world, we would have a we would have a say, uh, but some of the films that I work on, you know, some some of the films that are sort of a more high profile film, you know, come with a grip crew already already hired because you know the the key grip comes onto a film long before the camera operator does, you know, because they're doing a lot of tech scouting and mm-hmm. uh, and, and prepping, and. Uh, these good crews, you know, the busy crews, uh, generally have a very settled crew. So they'll generally have a, a dolly grip that's associated with that particular crew. And I, I think it's, um, unless I have extremely strong feelings about it, um, I wouldn't fight that because I, I think it wouldn't be a good way to go into a film right. forcing the grip crew to change their trusted dolly grip out, you know, mm-hmm. or someone that's been a part of their crew for, for mm-hmm. years and years and years. Uh, I think that would be, um, I think that would be unfair on them. That um, makes sense, yeah. But uh, luckily, in the circles that I move and the DPs that I work with, um, there's probably about four or five or six DPs that I work with fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. They've all got great crews and mm-hmm. great grip crews and, mm-hmm. uh, and and that comes with a great dolly grip. So, right. Naturally. So, uh if I had to work on on a film where um, I didn't know them um, and it didn't work out, I would definitely make the change mm-hmm. because uh, you know I think it would compromise the film too much to 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 have a weak dolly grip. 
but um, but I've been lucky enough mm-hmm. never to have been in that situation before. And on Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, which you just shot, yeah, um, and you also shot uh, the first film in the new trilogy, The Force Awakens. Yeah, who was your dolly grip? Was it the same on both films? Uh, fortunately, yes. Uh, There's a guy called Gary Hems. Um, one of the most extraordinary people around. Um, <laughs> I could marry him. He's so he's so amazing. I uh, I I absolutely adore Gary. He is so talented. Um, and to get back to the personality thing, he's probably got one of the greatest personalities I've, I've ever come across. He has your wife met him? Uh, <laughs> Does she know how you feel? She, <laughs> she's uh, yeah. Gary's her biggest threat. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, it's uh, Gary is is an artist in every sense of the word. He um, he he can move the camera in ways that very very few dolly grips can. Mm. Uh, he's got such a sense of timing and feel, uh, you know. And I've I've seen him do from one end of the scale, you know, with JJ, you know, the, the camera's often flying around at high speed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do a ton of tech, technocrane work, uh, you know, so Gary and his team are throwing 50 footers around and, uh, like you do with a steady cam. Yeah. But it's far more, it, it's far more physical mm-hmm. in a way, right. um, for them, you know, but to, I mean, he's treating it almost having the same kinds of movements, the same scale and speed yes. as you do with a steady Yeah, cam. no, I see what you mean. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, so he goes from that level of, you know, throwing this incredibly heavy, cumbersome equipment around, mm-hmm. you know, to to the most intimate sort of, uh, you know, sort of subtle moves mm-hmm. that you can imagine. And, uh, and he does it with an unfailing sense of humor. Mm. Uh, he loves show tunes and he's always <laughs> singing them on set. Interesting. And, uh, he's um, he's he's you know one of the greatest privileges I've had to to, to work with, with someone like that. Wow. And uh, as the other key component of that team, the first AC, um, who do you, who'd you work with on this film? And, and was it on the same films. person on both? Yeah, on both yeah. films. It was uh, S- Serge Naffa. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Um, you know he's. I just having been a first assistant, uh, I was I was a first AC for for ten or eleven years. Mm-hmm. I think before I moved up to operating, I know how hard it is. I know it's the hardest job on set and uh, probably the least understood job on set. There's probably only about five people that realize on, on an entire movie set how difficult focus is. Mm. And um, with someone like JJ, it it takes it to uh, the next level. You know, the camera's always flying in, pushing into minimum focus, uh, you know, whip panning, uh, timings, you know, it just never ends with JJ. There's never an easy shot with him. And uh, Serge, the the work that I saw him do on um, on The Rise of Skywalker was just out of this world. He's, he's extraordinary. And um, you have to meet Serge to know him, but he's he's very quiet. He's uh, he's extremely low key. Hmm. Um, never makes a fuss about getting marks or you know how hard a shot is. He's just uh, he's almost invisible at times. You hmm. know, sometimes I can look around the set to try and find where he is, uh, but he's always present. He's always paying attention, and uh, and uh, he's world class. He really is. Hmm. 
fascinating. Yeah. As good as they come. The the skill needed to become a first AC is is uh, something people really don't acknowledge much. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, it's uh, and and you know to you know to take it even a step further. You know, we we shot the we shot it on film, mm-hmm, and right. uh, and uh, you know the the taps are okay. But they're not brilliant. You know, we had HD taps, but they they're not brilliant. You you can't really tell critical critical focus, and uh, you know basically you're committing to work and moving on, not knowing whether you've got it a thousand percent. Wow! Until you see it the next morning in dailies and, on a film uh, of the scale of Star Wars, yeah, that must be it, it, nerve wracking. It amps up the pressure a trillion times, and that's one of the reasons why I gave up focus. Mm. It. Uh, it I, I just got sick and tired of having a knot in my stomach, you know, mm-hmm. every night, you mm-hmm. know, because I, I gave up focus before the digital world came into being. And, uh, and you know, you just never you just never knew whether you had a difficult shot or not until you saw it at the lab the next day. Mm. And um, I think my last, the last film I ever did and one of the last shots I ever did was... Um, as a focus puller. As a focus uh-huh. puller, was on a movie called Up Close and Personal, and um, that's an appropriate title <laughs> yes, for focus. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And uh, the camera uh, was on a crane, mm-hmm. and uh, it started high up above a bed, and Michelle Pfeiffer was lying in the bed, staring straight up at the camera. And um, as the camera descends slowly towards her, you know, she breaks down and, and is crying, and we push into minimum focus into a huge close up. And, um, you know, it was an extremely hard shot. Uh, Did you nail it? They were, they were breaking the set down, the, you know, at the end of that. Uh, I think Michelle Pfeiffer, it was her last day and she was not back the next day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought to myself at the end of that shot, I said, oh, my God, this is, this is crazy. You know, this is, I didn't even know if I had it or not, you know, mm-hmm. on the, and especially on the taps in those days. Yeah. You know, it was hard. There was, uh, I didn't have a Cinetape or a... Or a light ranger, you know, it was on the on the on the sights follow focus, you know. So it was, you know, I felt like I was up against it. And uh, did you get it? I got it. Yeah, I got it. But um, I just, I just thought to myself, this is probably my last movie as a right. focus puller. Right. I'm, I'm going to do something easier like camera operating. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, that perfectly leads me to to a question about your career. You mentioned, um, you know. Doing, doing work as a first AC to start. Uh, is that how you started or was that just what you did before becoming a camera operator? And you, you're not just a camera operator, you are a steady cam operator, mm-hmm. which people don't necessarily realize are actually often two distinct um, jobs on yeah. a set because yeah. uh, many of the top working A camera operators do not do steady cam because it's very much its own skill. Right. So, yeah, if you can talk about how your career started and then when you made the leap to camera operating, well, uh, I started, what you did. Yeah, I started back in South Africa and um, I think it was in, uh, goodness, it must have been 1982, I think, um, where I got into the business. Um, actually, I actually started at um, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, which had a film unit then. And, um, and in those days... They used to shoot the majority of their work on 16 mil film. Mm-hmm. And um, I went through their training program and uh, became an assistant there and um, eventually worked my way up to up to shooting. So, you know, you... Shooting news footage? Yeah, and sports mm-hmm. and magazine programs and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And um, 
I did that for a couple of years and then I, I wanted to get into the big leagues and I thought, um, you know, this is great, but, uh, you know, you, you always see these, you know, the, the big glitzy commercials that were shot on 35 mil film and, and, and the movies and, you know, and, you know, you, you, you see these Hollywood films and you think, wow, this is just phenomenal. You know, there was just the grandeur of it always blew me away. You wanted just, to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of that. And, um, did so, you know how at that point, what were your actual personal aspirations? Um, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't really know how, but uh, I, 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 I knew that there was a, a, a film business in South Africa that was small, but there was some. There were extremely good people working in it. You know, it was, it was sort of, uh, you know, like a like a, like a shallow pool. You know, but the people at the top were world class, and um, and uh, I talked my way into that, and and I had to. Having been shooting stuff on sixteen mil, I I stepped back down again to become a a PA, and um you know and then on thirty five production thirty five uh-huh. mil yeah just to try and break into that world right so you reach the peak yeah. of one medium and yeah, then you go and, to uh, the bottom of the other it was a it was a humbling move I have to say um you know I I remember sweeping floors and cleaning out spit buckets and things like that as oh. a as a PA and um. And uh, but it was just something that you had to do, and uh, and not and, for too uh, long, right? Uh, luckily, it wasn't for too yeah. long. Yeah, and then became a second AC, and then uh, did that for a couple of years, and then moved up to firsting. And uh, and because South Africa had a fairly small industry, um, I was lucky enough to sort of be able to break into the that upper echelon fairly quickly, mm-hmm. because it wasn't a giant industry like it, mm-hmm. you know, like it like it is in the United States. So I worked with some fantastic people, and um, and then um, I think the last film I worked on as a first in South Africa, we actually shot this movie in Zimbabwe and Namibia, but it was a co-production between a South African company and and um, and Disney. So we were the B camera guys, and they brought out all the the A camera guys from the US and all the keys, and. We did this film, it was called The Far Off Place. I think Reese Witherspoon was 14 or something mm-hmm. at the time. She was a minor. And um, and I, I met all these amazing um, key people from that had come out from the US, you know, people that are still, you know, pretty big in the industry here today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said to them, listen, you know, I, I want to come to the States. And uh, with incredible generosity, they all said to me, if you come to the states, get in touch with uh, you know get in touch with us, and we'll we'll try and give you a leg up, and and that's exactly what they did. Um, I came here, um, and uh, you know having contacts, it was just so easy to you know to to sort of move into the business here, and I'm also leaving out one of my most important people in my career, which is Chris Harhoff. Mm. Um, I'd always been um, very close friends with him, and I knew he was in the business in in the U.S. He had moved here, I think, two years prior to me moving. And another uh, South African, another South operator. African, yeah, yeah. And um, he was sort of uh, you know one of the early Steadicam uh, pioneers, and uh, and so when I decided to come over, he said, you know. I'll be here and, you know, I'll be here to help you. So I got over here and he 
stayed with him for a couple of months, you know, at his place and, um, and I started assisting him wow. and I got into the union assisting him. We did a film called Stargate and, uh, the Stargate, the Stargate, yeah, wow. the first, the first yeah. Stargate. And, uh, Chris was the B camera operator, mm-hmm. Steadicam, and I was his assistant. You were the first AC or I was second? the first, first AC on okay. that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, that movie started off it was a huge movie it was yeah. at the time it was a massive budget but they started off non-union to build all the sets mm-hmm. and uh you know because it was such a there was a huge sets out in yuma arizona and down in the in the dome in long beach <clears throat> and um and the day we started shooting that film first our principal photography it went union because it was just too big mm-hmm. you know not to and you instantly not became union so I, as a result. I, I got into the union, yeah, sort of pretty, pretty early on in, you know, in my stay in, right. the, in the U.S. So before when I had asked you about um, what it takes to be a top camera operator, when uh, we had first met and you said luck. It's all luck. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's part of what you were talking about. <laughs> it's all luck. Um, I tell you what, it's, uh, you know, you, there, there's so many it's so weird to look back at your career, you know, and especially fortunate enough to get a lifetime achievement now, you know, it's, it's, you know, you look back at your career and you, and you just marvel at, at the, the avenues and the paths, Mm -hmm. you know, that, um, you know, that you've traveled and, and you can almost trace back, you know, how it all started just by following these different, different avenues. And, uh, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, but anyway, so I, uh, I I assisted I assisted Chris for um for a couple more years mm-hmm. and uh you know we did some wonderful films and then the last film was up close and personal and during that film um you know I said to him listen you know I'm I'm interested in uh, becoming a steadicam operator and uh he mentored me and taught me how to do steadicam wow. so for almost a year um I flew the steadicam <clears throat> around him and uh uh you know, on set, we would often do a Steadicam shot for the movie mm-hmm. and then, you know, they would move on to another set. And um, if if we weren't working on that particular setup, you know, Chris would allow me to strap on the Steadicam and then I would recreate the shot that he had just done. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and he would... With he would, the actual camera they were using? With the actual camera, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what was your um, role on, on those sets at that time? I was the first AC. Okay, so yeah. it was before you officially before I yeah. Had so I was still I was still sort of training. You were preparing to become a Steadicam operator, but I hadn't I hadn't made the leap yet. Okay, and, so you were preparing uh, and Chris was, for that before was, was you training me. left. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. didn't I, leave and then decide to prepare. Exactly, I, I, I didn't want to leave and sell myself as a Steadicam operator and not know what I was doing. Right, you know, it's um, it's unfair to anyone to uh, to hire to come you like that. that set, yeah, yeah. And, um, and you basically learning on the job so i try to i try to be as prepared as possible hi let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode evidence cameras if you're in the los angeles area evidence cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met they're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera related including helping you create your vision they strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list which i might add they can do no matter what you need With tons of gear and extensive relationships, they can help you get any piece of equipment you want. Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown LA, I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. Oh, and they're not just a rental house. They have a studio space to shoot in, and they offer educational workshops as well. 
Like Steady School, an ongoing training course offered for camera operators looking to master the Steadicam and ACs looking to master focus. Learn from Colin's path and start your journey to becoming one of the next great camera operators. Sign up at SteadySchool.com. Steady, S-T-E-A-D-I, school.com. Now, back to my conversation with Colin Anderson. So uh, I, I made the move at the end of that movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what year was that? <clears throat> Oh boy, uh, um, maybe, maybe it isn't about, I'm, I'm guessing now, but I think it was about 97. 97. I'm not sure. The timing makes sense given a couple of years after Stargate. Yeah, I think it was yeah. about 97. Yeah, okay. it's, um, I'd have to check back on that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so the DP of, um, of that, particular movie up close and personal was uh, was was this wonderful man um walter lindenlaub and i'd done about four pictures with him as a as a first ac he'd also shot stargate and independence day and oh up wow close and personal. some of the huge so, movies of the yeah, 90s yeah yeah um and uh so when i decided to 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 go to steadicam um he said to me listen colin i can't employ you as an operator you've got to go away for a year or so and um and you know, learn the ropes. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely, it makes total sense. So um, where um, what what is mm-hmm. what counts as you having learned the ropes? Okay, so um, so sort of slightly embarrassing, but also hugely uh, important was one of the first things I did. You know, when I when I started operating, was I I got a, a small film, a tiny little film called. Um, cell block sisters vanished behind bars hmm. and um it's it was kind of one of those sort of uh movies you know about girls in prison and that and uh you know they they had the odd obligatory shot of breasts and you know things like that but it, it wasn't by no means pornographic but you know it was Just kind of one crude. of those yeah. sort of like a red shoes diaries type of um you know type of production you mm-hmm. know with uh, with a little bit of um you know, spice to it. Mm-hmm. I got paid a hundred dollars a day for my my operating and my equipment. Wow! And you had owned a Steadicam at that point. So you had, I had the you had bought I bought a I bought a rig. I I had the sled, and um, but they were so excited, you know, for such a small production. They were so excited to have um, a Steadicam. You know, this was massive for them. That we literally did every single shot on the Steadicam of this of this whole movie. Right, so got... I literally wore the Steadicam for, for 12, 13 hours a day. You know, we do so hard on we do wide shots, we do over shoulders, we oh. do close ups, we do tracking shots, we do everything on the Steadicam. And um, it was absolutely invaluable, you know, because <clears throat> you know you've got a camera, you've got a set, you've got actors, mm-hmm. you know, you you know, what more can you ask for? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was massive and i did a couple of other things that year and then um at the end of that year chris was supposed to do a movie called the jackal mm-hmm. um that was with bruce willis and uh and richard Gere, and it was a big film at the time and uh and walter linden now was shooting it as well and uh chris had to pull out at um sort of at the last minute so walter called me and he said listen um do you want to do it you know, as the B camera Steadicam operator. And, had he uh, seen the film you had shot? I, I don't think or did so. Did he just trust? I that don't think so. You shot just, a film. Yeah, and exactly. That yeah, was enough. Yeah. I'd been away for a year, mm-hmm. so I think he, 
I think he said, okay, um, do you want a shot? <clears throat> and I said, I'd love it. And he said, listen, he says, um, because you're so new, I can't protect you. He said, uh, I can't fight for you. If you, if you, if you swim, you swim, if you sink, you sink. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's the way it is. And I said, absolutely. Um, I'd love a shot at it. And, um, I managed to get my way through it and, um, and, uh, and I, I think I went on to do another three or four films with Walter as mm -hmm. his, um, he bumped me up to A after after that, and uh, we did films like Red Corner and uh, and uh, um, Isn't She Great? And I, I can't remember some of the other ones, but mm -hmm. uh, but um, you know Walter was massively instrumental in giving me you know my first break wow. as a as an operator slash Steadicam. Right, amazing. Now yeah. I want to then talk about how you connected with J.J. Uh, Abrams because you've been his camera operator on his films for many years now and, and that seems like a you know a partnership where he yeah. particularly wants to have you there and yeah. I'm sure you know he works with the same cinematographer Dan yeah. Mandel as well um, so I'm sure he feels the same yeah. but um, before we do you mentioned um, having the Steadicam you know on you and you're operating with it for oh, at least 12 hours a day mm -hmm. now um, I've spoken with other camera operators who used to do Steadicam and then no longer do just because it was very hard on their body. They had right. some knee surgeries, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you seem to be in, you know, perfectly healthy shape and you've been doing it for a long time. So what, um, what do you do to make sure that you are able to perform, do the job and be healthy? I've been enormously uh fortunate that i haven't had any injuries over through, throughout my career um you know my 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 knees and my back and everything are still in great condition um i've i've always been reasonably athletic um i played a lot of sport in my you know in my youth and um i think that's that's helped me um i think you have to be fairly athletic and coordinated to do steady cam but um i've been lucky enough um, never to have you know sort of blown a knee out through you know anything else you know mm -hmm. I, I think if you if you go snow skiing and you and you tear your acls i mean that's that's a career ender um you know so i've i've been lucky enough never to have had anything like that but um uh you know as I've as I've got older now, I'll be I'll be sixty next year. Wow! Um, Happy birthday! Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, you know it's uh, it's I, I pay more attention to my body. Mm -hmm. um, I've you know in the last year or so I've started doing yoga, mm -hmm. which I think oh. is uh, which is absolutely amazing. And then something else called TRX. Mm -hmm. So so when I'm you know when i'm working i never exercise at all because you know generally i'm too tired and yeah. um you know the hours are too long you know when you do 13 14 hour days the last thing you want to do is go to the gym of course but in between movies i, I do three days a week of yoga and two days a week of trx okay and, um, so a very and um yeah. i think it I, I think it's important you know and um oh and stretching stretch mm -hmm. stretch stretch uh, yeah. you know, stretch as much as i can um i stretch on set all the mm -hmm. time, you know, whenever I, you know, when I'm waiting for something, I'll, you know, put my leg up somewhere and, mm -hmm. you know, do hamstring stretches or whatever, just to, you know, to try and keep limber. Mm -hmm. And you're fairly tall and lean. I've seen other Steadicam operators who, you know, it seems to make sense for, for that, um, 
that role that they're more they're shorter and they're very built they're more you know like not quite a linebacker but you know they're yeah. they're muscular very, very and heavy and yeah. small and shorter <laughs> lower center of gravity yeah yeah i'm very so, envious of those guys because you know the cameras are heavy and you yeah. know i've i've done you know, I mean, some of the film cameras are extremely heavy. And mm-hmm. then, you know, some of the 65 mil cameras, mm-hmm. um, you know, film or digital are, are lead weights. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, and often I pick up the camera and I think to myself, oh, my God, this is ridiculously heavy. Yeah. But then also, you know, you know, the older I get, um, the sort of the wiser you become as a Steadicam operator. Uh, some people think it's a cop out, but if ever I can, I um, I'll use the Garfield mount and hard mount it onto a dolly or a bicycle mm. dolly or or, or or something. You know, it's um, it saves you, and and it's also, I think it's such a such a wonderful sort of. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. It's such a such a wonderful way to combine two pieces of equipment if you have a steadicam and a dolly and mm-hmm. you know you're on a studio floor or a dance floor uh you know somewhere smooth enough for a dolly you know to to combine those two pieces of equipment i think you can do amazing stuff um as an operator i can be way more accurate mm-hmm. um when you're walking with a steadicam you know you're introducing a whole lot more into the into the steadicam you know through your body movement and your and your walking Whereas if you can hard mount it onto a dolly, it you can just be so much more accurate. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's uh, in the beginning. You know, you you think to yourself, "Oh, I'm cheating." You know, if you if you're doing a walk and talk, and you and you put the put the steadicam onto a dolly, and you and you use the dolly grip to to track you while you frame. Um, you know, sometimes people think, "Oh, that's cheating." You know, you should be wearing it and walking back with the camera. But um, I don't think so. You know, it's uh, it's it's the I think what's most important is to get a good shot yeah and no matter most how you filmmaking get it. <clears throat> is cheating if you think about it exactly you don't exactly. do yeah. any of these shots yeah. for real yeah. and, and the goal is to yeah. get the best shot you yeah. can however it's achieved yeah I've heard you know not a lot but once or twice over the years it's like you know someone will say oh you're getting paid to to wear the steadicam why are you not wearing it you know mm. why are you why are you putting it on the dolly and it's like interesting well, well, because it's better this way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're also getting paid for your experience and your knowledge of <laughs> yeah. how to get a great right. shot yeah, exactly. in many different exactly. situations. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, um, regarding your uh, collaboration now with uh, oh, yeah. J.J. Abrams on, it must be, what, five films? More than that, maybe? I think it's six. Six, okay. I think it's six. Um, yeah. So it started off, uh, I'd been working with Dan Mendel on, on other films. And uh, Dan got uh, for Tony uh, Tony Scott, right? No, no, you hadn't done those. No, okay. I hadn't. I, that was before my time with okay. Dan. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I think the first film I did with Dan was a movie called Skeleton Key, The Skeleton Key with Kate Hudson. Um, I was actually the B camera on that because it was the first time I'd met Dan. Uh, Mitch Dubin was the A camera operator, mm-hmm. and uh, and Dan and I hit it off. He is such an amazing guy you know also south african so yes yes born there and uh he's lived in a lot of places throughout his life but mm-hmm. he's south african and uh and uh you know we we clicked um he dan is an operator's dream he 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 does a lot of things sort of in the old school british way where he's he 
is sort of the lighting cameraman and he allows the camera operator to <clears throat> you know to to deal directly with the director okay and even though he allows that he's still involved but um he he places a large amount of um of responsibility on on the operator to to deal directly with the uh with the director mm-hmm. but anyway I digress um so I was doing this movie with Dan and mm-hmm. uh, and then he got Mission Impossible 3 with uh, with JJ and um JJ I think had been working with some other guys and JJ's extraordinarily loyal to his crew but I think Jay, uh, Dan persuaded JJ to take myself and Phil Carfaster onto onto Mission Impossible. Phil was Phil was the B camera the operator. B camera, okay. Yeah. And um and because of JJ's loyalty, um you know, he loves Dan and uh you know, and obviously he's used Dan on every film that he's done. And uh and because I'd built up, you know, this relationship with JJ as well, um it's just been it's just been a family since then. Mm-hmm. Um I if JJ was the last person you know, in the film world that I could work with, it it, it would be him. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's just such an extraordinary human being. And um, yeah, and I've, I've just been lucky enough to, to work with him. He's probably one of the hardest, op- you know, hardest directors to work for as well. Um, you are challenged every single shot of the day, every minute of the day. Um, you know, you'll 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 start a you'll start a shot with JJ on you know on a Monday morning, and you know when you finish the first setup, you feel absolutely drained, mm. you know, physically and mentally, you know, because it's been such a tough shot. And then you think, okay, great, you know, here we go, you know, and you know you work your way through the day and the rest of the week, and um, it's so rewarding, but um, incredibly tough. Mm. And how does he communicate to you the shots he wants? Does he use storyboards? Does he try no and um, no. you know walk the the set with you and and move as if he's holding the camera or? Yeah, so I, I think you know when uh, when we when we're blocking a scene, JJ's he we don't storyboard stuff because he he's the kind of director that needs to see things mm-hmm. and feel them out, and uh, when he gets onto a set. He'll start walking around and um, you can see him sort of patrolling the set. Um, we all follow at a respectful distance and um, let him think it out. He'll often use Artemis um, to... The iPhone of, app. The iPhone app, yeah. Just to, uh, just to sort of get an idea of, you know, the scope and lens sizes mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of shots that he's looking at. And before that um, existed, because you've worked with him before, uh, we'd that app use existed. A, we'd use a, a finder, yeah, and I and I do before. have I do have a finder. Um, you have your own. That, uh, I have okay. my own. Yeah, that um, and uh, we we've made it into a video finder. So um, so the nice thing about that is that everyone else can see it as well. So um, you know we have a we have a monitor. So if JJ is walking around with a finder, we can look and mm-hmm. see you know what he's looking at. Uh, which is enormously helpful. <clears throat> but um, JJ will sort of plot out a scene, you know, walking around. And uh, and then, you know, I think once he's got it in his in his mind, you know, and sort of solidified what he wants to do, he'll start discussing it with us, you know, with myself and, and with Dan. And, uh, and, you know, he'll he'll say, well, I think this should be a technocrane shot or there should be a dolly over here from there to there. And, uh, 
and uh, you know we'll discuss lenses and um, you know what what he's looking for in the shot and then um, once he's described it uh, you know then I'll start working with Dan and with um, you know with the Dolly group I'll often use the finder just to show everyone the size and you know the the edges of the frame you know which is enormously helpful to to the gaffer you know knowing where we're safe uh you know for his lights um i'll i'll talk to gary hymns like on star wars with gary hymns I'll, I'll talk to him about you know where we're going to put the track or where we're going to put the technocrane where the base is going to be and you know what the move is uh but it all stems from jj obviously mm-hmm. um you know and uh and 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 just how he communicate communicates to us mm-hmm. and on some of the very heavily visual effects kind of shots where there isn't um, so much of a set that he can walk through and, and, you know, figure out where things are and how to move through it. How, how are the shots determined then? So those, those, those sets, you know, those type of shots are fairly rare for JJ because he, you know, we, we often obviously do a lot of set extensions mm-hmm. but um but jj likes to work on sets you know mm-hmm. where there's it's very very seldom we'll just be in a total blue screen or green screen environment you know really? with, okay. with nothing um he will you know he will he will always ensure that there's a set and um so it's very very seldom that we don't have anything to work with okay um uh also just to add to to some of the things that JJ comes up with, you know, even once he's sort of blocked out a scene in his head and we decide to put up a, a technocrane or, or whatever, and, you know, we'll put it up. Uh, but then once we start flying the camera around and, uh, you know, sort of showing him the shot, it often changes, you know, because JJ is a director that that needs to see you know what he's getting mm-hmm. you know um some some directors can visualize everything in their in their minds and know exactly what they're going to get but jj needs to see it so we'll often change shots completely you know we'll start in one direction and uh you know with the camera moving for argument's sake left to right and you know and i'm climbing in height and uh, and by the time we land up with the final shot you know it'll be the exact opposite of that Interesting. You know, so it's not, um, it's very fluid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what's, what's wonderful about that is that you see how things develop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and JJ's personality is such that he doesn't get frustrated. You know, he, he will allow things to develop. Uh, you know, if, we, if we're struggling with something, um, invariably he'll apologize for making it so hard. Um, but uh, you know, once once we've all sort of locked into something, mm-hmm. generally, you know, we come up with something that's uh, mm-hmm. that's worth being on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that is certainly a testament to his talent, not necessarily the process. And I would think that process, in the hands of another director, would make uh, the shooting schedule longer than it needs to be. Make it maybe so they're not making their days. So, you know, he's obviously working at, at the top, you know, uh, of the craft and able to deliver, you know, on, on time, on budget and everything. Mm-hmm. So right. what are you, what is he doing um, or what's your experience of what he's doing 
that he's able to not take a long time and, and, you know, delay the process of shooting as he's trying to figure things out. Well, one thing, one thing I've seen with JJ that I don't see that often with, with other directors, there's, there's one other director that I can think of, mm-hmm. um, but JJ loves shots to develop. Mm. Um, it's very, very seldom we'll just do a standard wide shot and then just go in for coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, by develop, you mean... How would you describe so when what you're I when just... I what I mean by develop is that he will you know when we when we block out a scene he will allow one thing to take us take the camera into something else mm-hmm. and then that and then once you get there you know an actor or a, or an action will allow the camera to go somewhere else so, so a moving master so where the... it's a moving master yeah so uh-huh. you know if you if you're doing you know like a like a one page or two page scene uh-huh. you know traditionally you'd shoot a wide shot of that mm-hmm. and you know maybe from a couple of angles and then go for your coverage for over shoulders and close-ups and stuff like that <clears throat> where jj very very often will do that all in one and you know with minimal coverage and um you know anyone who sees any of his films will will see that you know the rise of skywalker has got some good examples of that where you know on the on uh, the Star Destroyers and, uh, you know, where where the guys are running around the corridors and that, mm-hmm. you know, often, you know, one shot, well, it'll be on a Steadicam or, uh, or or on a crane where, you know, it just goes from, from one bit of action to another, but to mm-hmm. another, to another. So it'll take a long time to set that up and a long time to rehearse it and to get it perfectly. Mm-hmm. But uh, once you've got that, you, you've knocked off, you know, one and a half pages. I see. You know. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. So you, you, you're still making your page count, mm-hmm. um, but you, you're doing it in a way where you, you're getting it almost in one shot. And he's confident enough in his craft to know he that is. that one uh, method of shooting the scene yeah. doesn't also need to have the backup of the traditional shooting, you know, for safety, yes. for example. Exactly. And uh, and I, I think it's so true what you just said that, you know, a lot of times directors will shoot stuff for safety. You know, they'll say, oh, just in case I need this, or in mm-hmm. case I need that, you know, I don't want to be stuck in editorial, you know, without the shot. JJ such a brave filmmaker you know that and he's he's got the the courage of his convictions that he knows that you know that's what he's got mm-hmm. and uh and you know they they're always dynamic exciting moving shots you know which you know which uh you know is yeah it's hard to go wrong you yeah, know if, they, if if you've got a good cast and you know they they're nailing their lines and uh and the camera's in the right place at the right time uh uh you know he he knows that he's got it mm-hmm. and um it's brave, brave yeah. filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. It seems it, it translates to the screen very well in terms of the the way emotions are um, uh, are translated to the audience. The camera moves actually reinforce what the what the characters are feeling or yeah. what the audience should be feeling about what's happening. Yes, it almost feels like you you're along for the ride. Yeah, you know where you where really, you're not just an observer. Yeah, yeah. I I actually experienced that uh, for the first time in a narrative film uh, when I saw Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. There was a, a camera move, and I felt like I was almost in a in a ride in an amusement park mm-hmm. where it's one of those rides where you're right. on a on a motion control seat and you're looking at a screen. Yes, exactly. And they're trying to 
you know, make you feel like you're moving through an environment. It felt like I was actually moving through the scene. Right, I never right, experienced right. that before. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It always felt like I was watching, you know, camera moves and, you know, exactly. language of yeah, cinema. Exactly. But I never felt like I was actually moving through the scene myself. Right, right, right. And exactly. I wasn't viewing it in any kind of IMAX presentation or yeah. anything or, you know, a 4D theater or anything exactly. where yeah. it was, it was uh, a result of anything other than the camera movement. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's it's an interesting it's a very interesting comparison because there's another director that I've that had an enormous influence on my career, which is Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, he, you worked very closely with him. Yeah, and he is he has a totally polar, different style, polar opposite to JJ, the polar opposite. You know, it's a and uh, and I think they're both phenomenal filmmakers. They are. in their own rights. You know, they they both of them at the top of their game, mm-hmm. and uh, yet they couldn't be more different. You know. Paul won't move the camera. Paul mm-hmm. will let, you know, a three-page dialogue scene play out in a wide shot. Which is interesting because <laughs> in that in, in that sense, what you're what you were just describing, they both do. They don't yeah. shoot traditional coverage. Yeah, they exactly. they feel um, they know how to approach a scene where they exactly. can let it all play out in exactly one shot or a yeah. f- just a few. Yeah. And and you know, and I, and I mentioned that that JJ was so brave you know, with the way he shoots and, you know, committing to, you know, to, to sort of one shot that just develops and develops and develops. Whereas, whereas Paul is also incredibly brave, you know, because he's not doing anything, you know, mm-hmm. he, he'll let the camera just sit there. And, mm. uh, you know, how many directors out there would say, oh, no, I need a close up. I need, you know, I need an over shoulder, you know, mm-hmm. where, where, where Paul is like, no. And, and it's also a testament to his actors mm-hmm. and the, you know the the script, mm-hmm. how it's being delivered. Right. You know, where, yeah. His I mean, his movies lend themselves a, a bit better to being shot that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Where you you just sit there and you and you just watch and listen, mm-hmm. and uh, it's always well. I find it so compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that style is a little more what someone might call classical. Uh, yeah, you know, filmmaking yeah. in terms yeah. of the way the the cameras move very slowly, very precisely, right. right, and and somewhat seldomly. Yes, and if you look back at the original Star Wars films, they were shot very classically. They they right. were not pioneering any sort of yeah. you know camera movement, right, uh, right, except of course in the space battles. But um, what JJ has done with uh, his films oh, is a total that's... different approach to the camera movement, <laughs> and yet obviously that's... you know he's spoken about how he wanted to capture yeah. the feeling of those original yeah, films yeah, yeah. and uh he was doing it not through the camera movement so were there yeah. any discussions back on uh, the force awakens and on this film about um moving the camera in any specific way because it is a star wars movie or no no i because i know because definitely not because you know i did two star trek movies with him mm-hmm. and it was the same thing you know and yeah. so it's I don't think it had anything to do with um, with Star Wars and any style that he was particularly looking for. I think mm-hmm. it's just JJ's style. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Mission Impossible, the Star Treks, the Star Wars. Um, you know, they the camera doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and as I said earlier, he's so challenging to work for as a as an operator. You know, you you have to use every ounce of your skill or whatever you, whatever it is you have. You know, just trying to stay up with him um you know he did he did he's done stuff with me where he loves shaking the camera 
mm-hmm. and uh, I think at first where well, he's physically he's holding physically the film magazine, the, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, he's got this high frequency shake that he does with mm-hmm. his hands, <laughs> and uh, I think the first time he did it to me was on uh, on the first uh, Star Trek. And uh, on Steadicam. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, wow. And that's totally, that's sacrilege. You yeah. Know, like that's fighting everything. The, that... Touching the Steadicam yeah. is like a total no-no. It's like, you know, uh, you know, and I'd be doing shots and JJ would be standing next to me and he'd be have his hand on the magazine shaking it like crazy. And, uh, you know, I was using every ounce of my strength just to keep the actors in the, you know, in the box. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, goes against everything that a steadicam is about right you know but uh you know that's that's just jj yeah and, uh, and the effect makes it feel like oh, you're in a very yeah, dangerous yeah. situation yeah, where exactly. you are fighting uh, yeah. the forces of nature that are yeah, yeah. trying to shake the camera yeah you know because yeah. that's what's happening in the environment exactly exactly so the effect ends up working yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and he's also he's also so old school in so many ways mm-hmm. and um he loves to do things in camera mm-hmm. as much as possible you know and it sounds silly to say that because some of his movies are so visual effects of heavy course, yeah but um there's so many things that we do that are in camera you know when um we still do it to this day you know when when the millennium falcon or the enterprise or whatever mm-hmm. spaceship we happen mm-hmm. to be on or speeder or whatever you know, when they do a hard bank to the left, mm-hmm. you know, we'll we'll dutch the camera to the right. And, um, you know, so 90% of the uh, of these things are not on gimbals. Mm. You know, it's all poor man's, mm. you know, so, and that's all got to be co- coordinated with the, with the cast, you know. So if everyone's on the bridge of the, um, you know, of the uh, Enterprise or mm-hmm. in the cockpit of the, of the Falcon, mm-hmm. you know, and you're doing a hard turn, you know, it'll be mm-hmm. three, two, one, turn, you know, and the actors all lean one way and the camera oh. and the camera dutches the other way and it looks like you're in a massive turn. Wow. The, and, the, um, the spaceships themselves are not uh, a set built on a gimbal? No, no, no. Is that just how they do those things traditionally? Put, Maybe not traditionally, but on many, you know, for the, at least the last couple decades. all the big budget films, you know, yeah. they, they'll build gimbals, you know. Is and, there a reason uh, that isn't done? Um, it's well, one of the things it's number one jj loves to do that kind of stuff mm-hmm. i think it you know he and he does it so well mm-hmm. that uh you know i defy anyone to to look at any of his films and say oh that's that shot's not on a gimbal right you know, that that set's not on a gimbal yeah um i think he gets a kick out of it mm-hmm. and um it's obviously a huge cost saving ah that's a good um, point yeah. Uh, you know, sort of way of doing things. You know, when you when you've just got a set planted on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's just uh, it's so exciting to to be around someone like that who mm. he's so smart. You know, he's he's always like five steps ahead of everyone else. Mm. Um, you know, and he comes up with these things, and you're like, oh wow, that's amazing, and it and it just works so well. You know, all yeah. these little tricks that he has. Interesting. But part of that that makes those things actually work, what sells them is the camera movement. Because exactly. otherwise exactly. Not, oh, yeah. doing it not on a gimbal just looks fake. It's how anyone, Absolutely. you know. Yeah, it's stuff, all got to yeah. be, yeah, coordinated and and in sync with everyone else. And, mm-hmm. you know, the camera's got to be in sync with the actors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, when you when you get it, it's it works. It's just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And you add a bit of shake and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you it, feel, it feels like you're there. Very cool. Do you recall how the shooting schedule progressed on this film? How many shoot days? 
was it and and oh uh, boy i i don't remember exactly how many days but it it had to have been close to close to 100 days uh-huh. okay I, I think it, i think it was okay um uh i don't think we went over mm-hmm. um we did a little bit of um we did a little bit of additional photography um you know in the middle of last uh, you know middle of 2019 some pickups yeah, 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 just sort of uh, pickups and you know additional scenes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, there was about two weeks of that mm-hmm. back in London, mm-hmm. and then a little bit of reshooting here in 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 LA. Mm-hmm. So that brings up a question of secrecy, especially you know with the final film right. the franchise and all the <clears throat> massive secrecy that uh, yeah. goes along with that. So how much of the film did you? Uh, know about did you ever see the script and uh, can you talk about any particularly interesting security measures that were taken yes yeah, so the security was enormous i mean as you can imagine so i did get to read the script um you know some people weren't allowed to read the script mm-hmm. but being the camera operator mm-hmm. um i was lucky enough to read it um we were sequestered in um in a room um it was all on a tablet mm-hmm. and um you know, sort of a hand in your cell phone, you know, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, even if you had to leave the room to go to the bathroom, you mm-hmm. know, you'd have to check in your tablet again mm-hmm. and then re-sign it out again. Um, everything was in code. Uh, actors' names were in code. Uh, sets were in code. Um, locations were in code. And um, it got pretty... It's pretty difficult, mm-hmm. you know, at times, you know, to to sort of uh, work out what you're doing. You know, yeah, I can with, imagine that would cause a lot of confusion. Yeah. Maybe yeah. people show up to the wrong set one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everything, you know, all the names were changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, it's, uh, you know, you, you you really had to try and stay on top of it. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, I mean, having seen the film now, you know, there's some stuff that I see now and I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's what that was. You know, that's what mm-hmm. we did that day, you know, because uh-huh. often you're shooting a shot and, uh, you know, you, you know, whatever it may be. And you don't quite know how it's going to fit into the, um, you know, into the mm-hmm. into the big picture. Mm-hmm. Um, the sides were all um, there was a special department. It was actually Dan's Dan's daughter and another uh, and another lady. Um, that were in charge of the sides, probably one of the most stressful jobs on the entire film, um, you know, being in charge of the sides, you know, because those often, you know, if those got out, yeah. it would be a disaster. Certainly. So they were signed out in the morning okay. and then you had to sign them back in in the evening. They were all um, they were all watermarked with our names on okay. and uh, in in red, uh-huh. on printed on red paper so mm-hmm. they couldn't be photocopied. No photocopies, yeah, wow. Yeah. So... Um, you know, a whole security department mm-hmm. um, monitoring all the social media sites, mm-hmm. making sure no one was taking a picture, mm-hmm. um, posting anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, yeah, because you know, with the, with the, you know, some of the the plots involved in the mm-hmm. movie, you know, mm-hmm. is obviously extremely important to keep. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. Things, things. Yeah. And as far as I know, nothing got out. No, I don't think so. Yeah. But then, you know, we were shooting some some big scenes in, at Pinewood. Um, 
you know the giant lightsaber battle mm -hmm. um you know on the on the death star in the yeah. in, in the waves. in the waves yeah yeah was that shot with wave tank or uh yes it wasn't like it it was in a in a tank mm -hmm. um obviously the the ocean is is cg is, is cg but um we had about 14 giant water cannons wow. that were firing water you know thousands of gallons at wow. a time you know um you know over the actors and then and you were right there in it huh? we were yeah that was mostly technocrane work oh, okay. um, but we also did a lot of it on the you know on the actual platform mm -hmm. <clears throat> um but we had giant green screens up um for two reasons you know one of the uh, blue screens um one of the reasons was um that uh you know we we're going to put in all the waves afterwards but then also for for um for privacy Ah, okay. just to you know, just so no one could yeah no one could see in. Mm -hmm. And when you went to um, on location, mm -hmm. you know, in in I believe you shot in Jordan for the mm -hmm. desert sequences. Yes, down in um, in Akaba. Wadi Rum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wadi Rum. Yeah. 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 How did um, I mean, people could take drones and you know shoot the set from above and and other you know ways of, yeah, of spying. So that, that, that what'd you do in those that, cases? That has that has happened. It didn't happen in Jordan, but. Um, it, it, it happened. Uh, I remember on the Force Awakens, mm. um, they had some uh, a drone flying overhead. Um, uh, some of the sets, the sensitive sets, mm -hmm. were um, were covered with um, you know fencing. Well, not fencing, mm -hmm. but um, barriers mm -hmm. <clears throat> around them. You know, to to try and keep them secret. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, because we were so remote, there were only a couple of roads in and mm -hmm. out, so we had security. Okay. Um, that makes you know, sense. Obviously, um, anyone coming in or out had to show mm -hmm. a badge. Mm -hmm. Everyone had to wear badges mm -hmm. the whole time. Um, but but you're right. Um, they they had people monitoring it the whole time. You know, mm -hmm. sort of walking around and uh, keeping an eye that mm -hmm. people weren't using their cell phones or yeah, interesting. Um, yeah. Um, on the topic of locations, were there any uh, particular locations that were very special to you or? Um, you know, really uh, cool to travel to. Well, we didn't have that many locations, but it um, looks like a lot. But in the uh, film. it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but uh, I'd have to say that uh, it was phenomenal going to Jordan. Was it? <coughs> had yeah. you ever been and, there before? Going to, I'd never been there. No, okay. no. And to, you know, and to go to Wadi Rum and to, mm -hmm. you know, and and to, you know, to be there in the desert, you know, yeah. where these other epic films have yeah. been shot, you know, yeah. and which is pretty fantastic. And at the end, the um, yeah, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia most yeah. famously was shot yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Um, at the end of the film, uh, when uh, Ray went back to Tatooine, did you physically go to the original Star Wars set in Tunisia? Sadly, not. No. no so no. how was that shot? Because no, it was, looks there was there was exactly like there, I would think it would look Jordan, thirty yeah. years later. Yeah, that was exactly that was in Jordan, and they they went to obviously enormous trouble to try and recreate it exactly. They recreated it yeah, in the desert. Re recreated it, yeah. Now yeah. why not just go to where the sets actually are and already probably you know having sand yeah. covering them and everything? Well. It was such a giant crew. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think I heard that we had over a thousand hotel room hotel rooms booked in um, <clears throat> in Aqaba. Wow! It was um, you know we had a small city built you know out in in Wadi Rum you wow. know for, to house the base camp and um, you know to just the to house all the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, does that city <clears throat> remain when you leave, or does it get dismantled? no? It would have been torn down. Yeah, really. Yeah, because. Yeah. Does that include like tents and plumbing and electricity? 
uh, well, generators. I mm-hmm. think uh, three generators mm-hmm. to run it. It was just really like a small city, but wow. uh, but obviously, um, you know, uh, you know, sort of honey wagons mm-hmm. and water potties and things like okay. that, and giant tents. And yeah. uh, wow. but it was uh, an enormous infrastructure. Mm-hmm. The Jordanian army, I think, were very. Very um, influential in in, in in building, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So and uh, you know to so I think they're committed to Jordan, mm-hmm. you know, and okay. uh, much easier to build, mm-hmm. um, you know, Tatooine in, mm-hmm. uh, in in Jordan than to fly the whole company to Tunisia. Interesting. And, uh, I would think they could do maybe like a splinter unit just to capture a few, you know, shots out there. But <laughs> yeah. I guess it uh, makes on sense. Star Wars, uh, probably nothing's, not. Nothing yeah. small. Yeah, nothing. yeah, nothing is small. What about the, the shots back on the uh, the island in Scotland? I forget the name of it. Uh, Skellig. That's it, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, did you travel there? We did not. Okay. Uh, so that was all recreated. Recreated? Recreated. The second yeah. unit didn't even do <coughs> no, anything there? No, no, that was recreated? No, yeah, recreated. Was yeah. it created also in The Last Jedi? Or can't answer that. I don't know. Because I know yeah, they also yeah, shot I, there I, for I, real. No, actually, no, I, I can't answer that. They they went there for real. They went yeah, there for they real. They went there for real. They, and and think, I think they spent quite a lot of time up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, they they definitely went there. Yeah, yeah. I know they yeah. went there, but I didn't yeah. know if they uh, so just this, maybe went yeah. there for certain shots and yeah. then otherwise replicated it. At yeah, Pinewood. Sh- yeah. So the 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 scene you know with Ray at the at the burning mm-hmm. uh, Tie Fighter, you mm-hmm. know, with she throws a sabre and yeah. uh, and uh, and of course so, you can't do that Luke, on the actual Luke island. Comes out, but. <clears throat> you couldn't. Yeah, but that was all that was all on the back lot and at Pinewood. In Pinewood, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was all a, a set okay. that was built. Okay. Oh. Obviously um, extended, uh-huh. you know, when you see, um, you know, see the mountains mm-hmm. of Skellig, but mm-hmm. uh, that was all recreated. Yeah. Well, ILM yeah. does a class job, don't How they? How good were ILM? Yeah. Oh, my God. Roger Guyette and his team, just quite extraordinary. I, mm. I thought the effects were mm. were unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Oh. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of the, the, the sets on this film, um, I noticed a few that looked just like amazing set design and you know incredible yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. can you talk about um the locations that that you shot in and uh if any of the sets were particularly uh challenging to work through or what they were like uh, on uh, some of the locations yeah yeah so um boy there there's so many of them um uh it was one particular set it's probably the biggest set i've ever seen mm, really? um it was uh it was on the um on the Star Destroyer for the sort of the final scene where mm-hmm. the horses are galloping. Yeah, down I wanted there. to ask about that one. Yeah, yeah. So that was shot in um, about two hours north of London um, in a place called Cardington. Mm-hmm. And it, these were these incredible. There's two hangars there. We 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 built the set in one of the hangars. They were for um, zeppelins or airships mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the Second World War. Absolutely giant, giant hangars. Like I cannot describe. How many football fields you could fit into one of these? Really? Um, into wow. one of these hangars, just huge, um, freezing, freezing cold. Mm. I think uh, the day we sh- well day uh, when we got there because we shot there for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was thirty-two degrees outside wow. and twenty-seven degrees inside. Even with all the people <laughs> on yeah. the crew. Oh my god, we wow. were we were ants in this place. Wow, it was so huge. Anyway, the set itself, you know, the 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 Star Destroyer was, um, or Death Star, mm-hmm. Death Star uh, was 
probably four or five hundred feet long, mm-hmm. um, just absolutely massive, but wow. still dwarfed in this in this place. Um, and um, you know, so they built the set, biggest I've ever seen, and then they built a sort of a track, a rubberized track. Mm-hmm. Uh, along the side of it, and uh, that's the camera move along. No, for the for the horses oh, to the horses. to gallop. Okay, yeah, you know, so you've got horses galloping interior. You know, mm-hmm. um, six or seven horses, wow. and then on the outside of that, we had um, tracking vehicles, various tracking vehicles. I think we had a grip tricks with a with a small arm built on it, mm-hmm. or the Libra, you know, on on the small arm, and then another Libra hard mounted on on the grip tricks. Used a grip tricks because uh, you know it's an electric vehicle and mm-hmm. the acceleration is is instantaneous. Mm-hmm. You know, so for horses, you know, you need that you right. know, to to start and stop with them. And uh, you know, we were doing these tracking shots all up and down. So that's part know. of how you got the the scale of the camera movement that really looks like it's a almost like a fighter going yeah, with a camera exactly. mounted on. Oh, and know, that was moving also moving through yeah space. What, yeah, and that was. A lot of that was was uh, was cable cam. Oh, cable cam as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I can see why that would be. Yeah. So they used. they mapped out um, you know a, a footprint for the cable cam, mm-hmm. and um, you know it could fly anywhere in the mm-hmm. in that sort of uh, in the box that they'd mapped out. And uh, yeah, we did a lot of shots in a sort of swooping down mm-hmm. into you know sort of close to the surface, mm-hmm. you know, in between the troopers and the um, and the. Um, and the resistance fighters. Mm. And when um, when it came time, when when from my recollection, I've only seen the film once. But when the ship is crashing and you know they're like sliding down the ship, um, if it wasn't built on a gimbal, how how did the effect of them dutching, being you know dutching the camera? But what about gravity? Because they were being well, pulled we'd pull, down. We'd pull with them on cables. On, on cables. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah kind of old school techniques but yes, they work yeah, and they're cheaper yeah, they, i mean yeah you wouldn't have known that that was a non-gimbaled no. set yeah. no you yeah, wouldn't have because yeah, yeah. everything else is moving it looks like yeah. it's tilting wow point proven <laughs> yeah there you go so were there any other um camera technologies or any unique applications of new um you know new technologies that are coming out all the time uh that were utilized on, on this film to to capture things absolutely not um and, you know, uh, you know, I think earlier you, you asked about sort of whether JJ had a particular style or, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, if we sort of went into the film sort of looking at particular styles. One of the things we, we did do, so you might have been right, um, is that we try to keep it as sort of fairly old school as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, we used technocranes. You mm-hmm. know, we had a lot of technocranes and Steadicam mm-hmm. and cable cam. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, apart from dollies and you know cameras on dollies and handheld mm-hmm. and you know stuff like that, um, uh, no real amazing technology. Mm-hmm. Um, we did do some drone work in Jordan. Um, we we shot in Jordan for about mm-hmm. uh, four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, were those drones yes. holding film cameras? Yes. Okay. They were. So everything yeah. was shot on yeah. film. Yeah, everything okay. was shot on film. Yeah, and then there was some helicopter work, you know, for some of the aerial plates. Um, but uh, I mean, drones don't really feel like particularly high tech equipment anymore, do they? They um, no, they I guess not. Sort of u- ubiquitous in the business. Yeah. In fact, but, I would um, argue that the helicopter shots feel more high tech because 
the uh, the way helicopters move over landscapes uh, yeah. has a different yeah. scale to it. And yeah, exactly. Feels it's, more expensive, honestly. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I do have to um, say before anyone calls me out on this, um, when I say JJ doesn't really use gimbals, mm-hmm. um, the the speeder sequence in uh, you know in the Rise of Star- Skywalker, mm-hmm. those. Um, those were um, on motion rigs. That makes the, sense. The, the two speeders, yeah, because we needed them to be able to turn uh-huh. and bank. Uh-huh. Um, we'd still do the banking in camera, but mm-hmm. um, but they also had a certain amount of bankability, mm-hmm. if that's a if that's a word. Um, Even if it isn't, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, so the speeders did have the ability to to swing left mm-hmm. and right and to spin around mm-hmm. you know 180 and uh, things right. like that so so we were you know we did all of that work off off uh, dollies and technocrane ma- mainly the technocrane mm-hmm. so while the technocrane was flying around these speeders you know in one mm-hmm. direction the speeders right. might be turning in the other direction and it makes sense because um, the technocrane can't do those really sharp, quick dollies or not dollies, um, Dutch angles and yeah, things in yeah. order to fake the effect. Right, right. That you were talking about you do, before. Yeah, we we do have you know because there was a Libra on the technocrane, so mm-hmm. we do we did have Dutching ability. Um, uh, JJ loves to do that. So mm-hmm. while I'm doing pan and tilt, JJ mm-hmm. will be standing next to me on the um, on the third axis and oh. he'll be and he'll be rolling the camera so he cooperates with you in a way. oh all the time literally yeah. cooperates like, exactly <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so uh, you know so he'll be standing right next to me he'll be wow. doing the third axis and he does it not he um, not yeah. the cinematographer not another because, operator or, yeah. or, or the cinematographer traditionally yeah, if changing. anyone else is operating yeah. it would be then the yeah. you know apart from another like yeah. a B camera it would be the cinematographer yeah. not the yeah. director exactly yeah. interesting that's no, always JJ he he always does the third axis wow and uh, and it's wonderful to you know to be right next to him you mm-hmm. know because you know he's you know, sometimes giving a little running commentary on what's going to happen, uh-huh. and uh, and you know, as as the operator panning and tilting, it's it's awesome to be able to be right next to him, having right. him narrate in your ear, hmm. you know, what's happening, and uh, you know, while he's while he's rolling the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, an interesting. Experience. But it, it's it's. I mean, I think you you'll agree with me. It was quite a quite a an exciting sequence in mm. the film. Yeah, it, you know, it really and, was. Uh, and, you know, when you consider that those are, you know, sort of hard mounted mm-hmm. on, on, on motion rigs. Yeah, I was going to ask. Spinning around. Were those you know, indoors? Or no. I could imagine another way they would do it would be to put a, a gimbal rig like that with the, um, you know, the set on some sort of a vehicle and then drive it through the desert. Yeah, so so they they they, they had the ability to move up and down rails, mm-hmm. but... But we'd only do that just to re- sort of reposition them for various reasons for sun or shade mm-hmm. or whatever like that. But we shot that all outdoors in the okay. desert in, in Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for shooting that outdoors was that we wanted the natural light right. to be it, on them. instead. It of looks shooting, real. It looks yeah, like it's done shooting in the environment. Interior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they weren't um, actually physically moving through space. They were. They were they pretty were, much planted. They were yeah, planted. Yeah, I think uh, I think they were on a piece of track about thirty feet long. Okay. But um, <clears throat> you know, to get the 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 impression that they were flying past mm. the camera, you know, the, the the actual camera on the technocrane would yeah. do those moves. You know, where the camera would sort of 
sort of swing mm-hmm. fast towards them and then spin around them and you know and do a 180 and you know right. and you see them and then the rest is also it, visual effects making it, the exactly. background look like it's exactly yeah. yeah yeah makes sense and then in the and the actual way speed, safer too for the actors not to be moving it suddenly oh, way, accelerating way and decelerating like that way safer yeah. yeah yeah so even though you know even though you know they weren't traveling at high speed you know the actors were sort of anchored in you know because mm-hmm. <clears throat> these the speeders did have the ability to um to to dutch and roll mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting yeah cool yeah. i recall on um the um the third film in the the third film shot uh, return of the jedi they did uh, an interesting technique with the steady cam moving through the forest uh shooting at um a slow shutter speed mm-hmm. and um and a low frame rate and then playing it back at 24 to make it look like right. they're, they're racing through the forest with yeah. the motion blur and everything yeah. while still doing it very safely. <clears throat> right. Were any kind of interesting techniques like that that, um, you know, are maybe pioneering some kind of uh, new way of shooting utilized on this film? Because Star Wars has always been in some way pioneering something, even with the, uh, the prequels, you know, they pioneered right. shooting digitally right, and right, right. Um, other things like that. Right. Well, also... On on uh, the film you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, you know, moving through, you know, and shooting, you know, sort of at uh, at one or two frames per mm-hmm. second, that was originally done by Garrett Brown right. on, on one of the early Star Wars. Ah. I forget which one it was. Um, forgive me for that, but mm-hmm. but they used um, used a VistaVision camera on right. the Steadicam for one of the speeder chases mm-hmm. through the forest. I think they did it up. Uh, yeah, and the, in Northern California. Yeah, in Northern California. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was Return of the Jedi. Was that Return yeah. of the Jedi? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know that was VistaVision at uh, one or two frames per mm-hmm. second, and, uh, and makes and, sense. And Garrett did that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that the, was the creator of the Steadicam. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. So I guess there was a nod on um, mm-hmm. on the Last Jedi too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting to Garrett. Yeah. Was, so we didn't. We I, I can't think of anything really that we did that was. Um, uh, new mm-hmm. or groundbreaking mm-hmm. or anything like that? Uh, no, I don't think okay. we did. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to pull up an article you wrote for uh, the Force Awakens after, shortly after the film came out. Um, you had written this in Camera Operator magazine, right? And you opened uh, by saying, "Star Wars has created a dilemma for me. I have a sinking feeling that it will never get any better than what I experienced on this amazing production. Where to from here?" So <laughs> what have you done since then um, besides this? And uh, how, how did really what I actually want to know is how the experience in this film compared to uh, the experience in The Force Awakens? Because that was, uh, you know, this something people didn't think would ever happen again, uh, you know, going back to the yeah, Star Wars yeah, universe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you were there from the very beginning and then now you were, you know, until the right, very end. right. Yeah, so you know, when I when I got onto the first one on on the Force Awakens, um, and full disclosure, I, I'm not a, a I was not a huge Star Wars, you know, super fan. Yeah. Super fan. Yeah, I was going to say fanatic, but that <laughs> might be uh, that might be cruel. It's a it's more of a super fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, from the moment I got to England. Um, you could just sense this it it you could almost 
touch it and taste it, the, the, the excitement was palpable. It was unbelievable. Everyone was just so incredibly um, amped up mm-hmm. about, you know, about your sort of reinventing the franchise. Yeah. And uh, the and it comes from the top, from from JJ and the producers and everyone. Everyone was so excited and and uh, happy to be there, and uh, and we all felt that we were doing something pretty significant. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, you know, the the atmosphere on set was just electric, mm-hmm. and I every imagine. day there was cheering and clapping, and uh, and it was just, you know. As I said in that article, it's it's hard to replicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rise of Skywalker, I think, because you know we'd gone, you know, there'd been so many, you know, so many Star Wars sort of, uh, well, not so many episodes, but uh, you know, so much content, so much content, yeah. you know, after that, that uh, some of the gloss had sort of um, mm-hmm. worn off a little bit. But um, there was still a wonderful atmosphere. You know, it is, it's still incredible. And, and it comes from the, the top and mm-hmm. it comes from JJ. <clears throat> you know, just it's the kind of person he is and it's the kind of energy he brings to the set and his humility and humor and, uh, and, and just his positive energies. It just it trickles down to everyone. So even though there wasn't that enormous sense of uh excitement mm-hmm. it was still there was still a you know there was still a, a portion of that mm-hmm. which um which felt wonderful and um i i still think it would be hard for me to replicate anything like uh, the force awakens in terms yeah. of the uh, i'd uh, imagine the atmosphere it seems like yeah, a once yeah. in a even well, not even lifetime in, in, in mean, a career so yeah. far in the history in of cinema that kind of is a yeah, unique situation yeah. <clears throat> you know, I've done other I've done other films which uh, I've found extraordinary just mm-hmm. for various reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know for the people that you're working with, and you know directors that you're working with, or actors, or cinematographers. Mm-hmm. You know that you think back and you think, wow, what a what an amazing experience, or mm-hmm. what a privilege to have worked with these particular people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day Lewis, mm-hmm. um, Bob Richardson, mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese. You know, they mm-hmm. these are just extraordinary people and yeah. uh you know chivo you know mm-hmm. you just you you think to yourself how lucky am i to have actually you know been on the same set as these people yeah you know so even though that's an enormous privilege it would be hard to replicate what mm-hmm. what the force awakens right was yeah know? yeah <laughs> I, it makes total sense yeah i i can imagine though um another scenario that would maybe come close which probably happened on this film which is as far as we know, it is the final film in the Star Wars saga, in the you know official in right. what I guess they're now calling the the do Skywalker. Be, do you believe that story? <laughs> well, I think so because yeah, yeah. they want to have some. You know, there it's a whole universe that they're going to be yeah, able to explore, yeah. and of yeah. course, they've already come up with other films. Um, <clears throat> but I think this, you know, yeah, three the end of the sky three movies yeah. in a trilogy of three movies right. itself is a good yes. place to end. Yes, so. I agree. Um, what was it like on the last day of shooting? Um, poignant, mm-hmm. sad, um, you know, just a, you know, just a, a, a feeling that, you know, something has passed, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, I think it's always hard to say you never say never, you know, because you know, 
ultimately these things are run by giant corporations mm-hmm. and uh, controlled by giant corporations and the bottom line is often the deciding what, factor. what is the deciding factor yeah. but um you know as um as a a technician i, I wouldn't use I wouldn't use artist, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, for your just, role, you wouldn't use artist. Well, I don't know, probably more of a technician mm-hmm. <laughs> with artistic input. Mm-hmm. There you um, go. Okay. But, uh, you know, you, you just think to yourself, um, what a privilege it's been, you know, mm-hmm. to have been a part of that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is something that's going to live in perpetuity and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, <clears throat> to go back to Gary hymns, mm-hmm. you know, um, We've been through so much together, you know. Your dolly um, grip, right? Yeah, yeah, my dolly grip, yeah. Yeah, we've done The Force Awakens. I did John Carter of mm-hmm. Mars with him um, and then this one. Um, you know, uh, we couldn't even say goodbye to each other. We both looked mm. at each other. As I said, rapping, we were going to start saying to each other, you know, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. But we, we looked at each other and we both sort of welled up and we couldn't mm-hmm. speak to each other. Mm. And that was just... It was just like, wow, this is a passing, you know, mm-hmm. this is um, a new, you know, a chapter closing. Yeah. You know? End of, of an era of sorts. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And we're both close to ending mm-hmm. or coming into the, the sort of the twilight of our careers. Of your know? careers. So, Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a. It was a poignant moment. Mm. Well, it's interesting. You see directors working. um I forget exactly how old um, Clint Eastwood is now, but he just came out with a film, which is, yeah. you know... Uh, Richard it, Richard Duell. Yeah, it's Duell. A, yeah, and he came out with a film last year. He's coming out with a movie yeah. almost every yeah. year now. Yeah. And he's certainly up in his um, late 80s. And so is Ridley Scott, and they're both yeah. working, yeah. you know, at, yeah. at top of the craft, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah. So um, what does a camera operator's career uh, longevity kind of look like? Like what... Uh, I think you how fade long away. Is the career? I think you fade away into um, <laughs> obscurity. <laughs> um, so certainly for Steadicam, um, uh, I'll I've, I've probably got about two years of Steadicam left in me. I I, I think really? you know it's mm-hmm. it is an ex, uh, an extremely physical job, mm-hmm. and um, you know if I can if I can do another two years, that'd be fantastic, mm-hmm. and then maybe. You know, another three or four years of uh, of of regular camera operating mm-hmm. after that, but um, you know, you never know when you know when your career ends. It's uh, it's probably when the phone stops ringing, and um, mm-hmm. and that's when you know that um, mm-hmm. you know, that that'll be the end. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, it's uh, you know, I I look back, and um, I'm fortunate enough to have this lifetime achievement award, and I, I look back and. There's nothing I would change. It's yeah. just been absolutely extraordinary, you know. Coming from, you know, a, a young South African boy, you know, into into moving to Hollywood and um, you know into this, into the major leagues, and uh, having the chance to work with the most enormously talented people, you know, across the board. You know, they, you know, no matter who you work with, you know, there's just some unbelievable people that you meet, and. Uh, and to be able to be part of that and to have some small input is just fantastic. Yeah, I imagine it must be. Yeah. Um, I've heard cinematographers, <clears throat> multiple cinematographers and directors, including even uh, Steven Spielberg, talk about how they personally believe that the job of the camera operator is the best job on set. And that's not even their job. 
Right. So as a camera operator, what is it that you personally find most uh, meaningful and, um, and fun about the job? I've said this many times, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, I think there's nothing truer that can be said. Uh, camera operating is hands down the best job on set. You're intimately involved with every aspect of, uh, of, of making the film. You, you're dealing with the director dealing with the actors with the cinematographer your your front and center um you're you're creatively involved your it's your choices that are that are that are being seen by everyone it's your creative choices and your artistic input and and there cannot be anything more rewarding than that you know you you've got so many moving parts in a movie um, and so many people are doing so many things, you know, towards one central element, and that is the frame. And everyone's attention is focused on what's in the frame, and and you're controlling that. And um, it's just uh, it's such a responsibility. It's such a it's such a privilege, you know, to be able to be the one who's pointing the camera and uh, making choices. Uh, the camera can be emotional at times. It can be, it can be so many things, and uh, and you're the one that's that's doing it, and um, and and it's gonna it's gonna live there for forever, and millions of people will be seeing your work and your choices, and um, what can be more satisfying than that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And how about working with actors? Because uh, the the role of camera operator, you really are right there next to them when they are doing, you know, yeah. world class performances. Yeah. So what is it like to be in the in, in the presence of them in a way that you know even the director isn't uh, privy to? I think there's always there always is a relationship with the camera operator and and the actors because, as you said, you know you you're sitting there right where right there with them. Um, you're witnessing them bearing their souls, and um, and I, I think they they can feel that. <clears throat> I think um, we're often their sounding boards. You know, often an actor will look at you and uh, you give them a thumbs up or uh, you know or a smile of encouragement or, or something like that. And um, I think they appreciate that. Um, I think it's important to be extremely respectful of them you know acting is so hard i think uh it's important to give them their space you don't want to just go chatting to them you know unless they're invited uh you know they're often they're often preparing or in some some place in their in their heads for their for their parts you don't want to go talking to them about you know last night's basketball game or something like mm-hmm. that unless it's invited mm-hmm. <clears throat> and i think it's important to to have that respect for them, um, but uh, it, it is an intimate, intimate relationship, and um, and I've I've been privy to you know some of the most extraordinary performances ever, and uh, you know to watch Daniel Day Lewis, you know do um, I drink your milkshake or mm-hmm. um, you know you know um i've abandoned my child mm-hmm. you know uh, or you know to watch philip seymour hoffman and joaquin phoenix and the processing scene in in um, 
in the master, in, in the master. Yeah. you know it's just the camera wasn't moving i was just an observer mm. and um some of the most compelling stuff you can imagine, mm-hmm. you know, and and what a privilege to sit there and have a front row seat and be the first to see it. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, you can't buy that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Cinema in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't ruin your experience of watching a movie when you've seen it um, so close and personal? Are you ever sort of jaded about not, what you see or, or not quite affected by it the way... Uh, audience no not at all i still cry in movies and mm-hmm. i cry more than i should mm. <laughs> uh, well, i can never understand why i do but mm. I, I still get caught up in them i can never watch a movie that i've done um i i can never watch it the first time and enjoy it mm. <clears throat> there's too many things going on in my head you know there's right. too many emotions um you know thinking about what we did on that day how i messed up you know how i wish i'd done something differently um uh, how cold I was, you know, how hot I was, you know, you know, there's just too many, there's too much stimuli sort mm-hmm. of coming back at you from, mm-hmm. from, but then when I see the film again, um, the second time and the third time, um, I can get caught up in it and, and I can actually sit back and enjoy the film and, uh, and, and not think about, you know, all the, all the stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that took in, in making the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be able to separate yourself from from all your memories of the work. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you're not able to, you know, have a clean slate to experience the film. Exactly, exactly. For instance, I, I've seen The Rise of Skywalker twice now. Oh, yeah, and, um, okay. The first time I <clears throat> I came out of it and I didn't even know what to think. Mm. I, I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was impossible to almost talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw it again, I was like, I loved it, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, and I saw so much more of it, and mm-hmm. uh, and I understood so much more of it, and mm-hmm. um, and it made so much more sense to me, just because I could sort of watch it, right, more you know, and, and, absor- and absorb it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did the same experience happen to you on the Force Awakens? Yes, after absolutely. you saw the first on, on time almost on every film. On every film, I, yeah. I work on, okay, uh, yeah. So it wasn't specific to this film because no, of all the all. other meaning not about it being yeah. the final film and yeah. everything else. Okay, and in fact, um. And I, I I don't know if this is. This probably more attests more to the brilliance of Paul Thomas Anderson, than 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 to me watching films over and over again. But every time I see one of Paul's films, a second, third, fourth, fifth time, mm-hmm. they get better and better for me, mm. because you just notice so many more things, and there's just so many nuances and uh, subtle things that you that you didn't see mm-hmm. in the first second third viewing that you start seeing and um mm-hmm. and i think that attests to his <clears throat> to his brilliance mm-hmm. you know and to his actors mm-hmm. you know just you know what's what they're bringing to yeah. the, all their choices yeah, yeah. exactly oh. exactly so carrie fisher um passed away mm-hmm. uh shortly after i believe the um completion of was it the last the last jedi yeah or did she did she pass away before that film completed principal photography i think she did yeah Yeah, i think so too because i remember i think it was before they ended yeah yeah yeah, yeah. because i remember watching that film and wondering how they were going to show her death right and then being surprised when she was still alive at the end of the film yeah and then having the same question with this film right so the way they handled it was beautiful Mm -hmm. but 
it, she was in a lot of scenes. It wasn't like they, it was clear to me they didn't just recycle a little bit of footage and then find a way to, to have her, you know, die early on in the film because, you know, she wasn't available to shoot anything. So how, how were the, the scenes with uh, Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia shot? Well, so it was all the the existing footage that we'd shot on The Force Awakens. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. there were a lot well. of lines that, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, so we'd, we'd shot a ton of stuff on her on The Force Awakens uh-huh. that never made the film. Okay. And um, But it was there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and JJ came up with the idea of, instead of that stuff just uh, being wasted, mm-hmm. um, he reworked the scenes in um, in the Rise of Skywalker, mm-hmm. you know, reworked dialogue scenes, reworked um, uh, action scenes, mm-hmm. you know, to to have her using the episode seven footage, mm-hmm. you know, into you know, and incorporated that into interesting in, into nine, yeah, yeah, because yeah. none of it looked like it was. Um, uh, there was actually one scene where it was clear that it was a a digital you know, motion capture uh, replication of her face uh, during the um, the training, the, the, the flashback uh, where she's um, completing her training with Luke. Uh, you know, yeah. they have the lightsaber battle in the forest. Yeah, they yeah, take yeah. off their helmets. That was very clear to me because she was also supposed to look younger there, that that was completely, um, you know, digitally created right yeah but yeah. The, all oh, the rest the, as the as the young layer yeah as the young yeah, layer yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, but yeah, all yeah. the rest of the footage of her looked completely real it's all that, yeah that and it was all her okay episode Makes seven sense. footage yeah, yeah so yeah. so did, did they motion control that motion uh, control that yeah, so they yeah. composited her face onto a body double uh and you you reshot no, scenes so, with so so daisy ridley so there was so they took her actually they rotoscoped her actual body depending uh-huh. on the size you know depending mm-hmm. on the shot that we had from right. episode seven and then uh that became a motion control shot mm-hmm. where the camera replicated what we had done on seven mm-hmm. and then we did that in the new set i see yeah and with, then they rotoscoped her okay. into the into the new set okay yeah. with yeah. the actors like daisy uh just Talking to well, we a had double. A, we had a yeah yeah okay. yeah. We had a lady that was dressed up, you know, like um, like Carrie. Yeah, and then yeah, and then they and actually... then we'd shoot. Uh, you know, sometimes we'd shoot an over shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know where you know it was just the back of um, right uh, yeah. of Carrie's head, which would be um, which would be a, a body double. That makes sense. Yeah. Some, I, yeah. I would yeah. imagine a fairly straightforward thing to exactly to do, not very, not very complicated, very yeah. simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, in fact, the lady was amazing. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, um, Okay. And then you know, obviously, all the all the shots on Carrie mm-hmm. were were was existing footage. Existing footage, mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, yeah, um, because none of it looks fake. Yeah, but I was yeah. surprised yeah. at that fact that it it worked with the story, right? And um, and none of it looked fake. Right, right. Wow, very cool. Okay, so um, I want to wrap up with a question about how someone who um is young and maybe you know not quite sure of what path they want, but they know they want to be involved in making movies. Uh, if they wanted to become a camera operator, what you think in today's landscape um, you would do if you were in that same position? I think it's important to, and you, you know, I, I, this is the route I took and I think it's important to come up through the ranks to see, even though, every other position in the camera department doesn't really help you become a better, it doesn't help you become a great operator. 
I think it's important to come up through the ranks and to and to to see how other operators work and to be around them. You know, if you if you're a first AC, <clears throat> you're you're right next to the operator. You're helping set the camera up. You you're um you know you're setting the head for him. You know and maybe rehearsing a bit of shot. You know while the camera operator is off doing something else. So I think you I think you start gaining and leeching and absorbing you know tips and experience just by being around mm -hmm. the camera mm -hmm. and and uh and and observing camera operators work if you had to go straight from and it has been done and uh, and a couple of guys that have done it have become great operators so there's always the exception to the rule but there are guys that have gone straight from second day seeing mm -hmm. you know to to operating and um it's not something necessarily I would have done. Some guys have done it super successfully, <clears throat> but I think um, it's important to go through all the steps, mm -hmm. you know, just to sort of by osmosis, you mm -hmm. know, just learn as much as you can. Mm -hmm. um, camera operating is, I feel, extremely instinctual. I can't tell you what a good frame is or what a bad frame is, you know, I think, you know, I mean, and yet you make them all the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's you know there's classic framing, but you know, you know, the way I would frame a wide shot or mm -hmm. a close up or whatever mm -hmm. is not necessarily the correct way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, your choice w would be no better or no worse than mine. It's just your choice, you mm -hmm. know. And um, you know, it's. Uh, I think you can look at other films. It's important to look at other films and to. <clears throat> you know, to see how they were framed. Um, but, uh, you know, rules are there to be broken. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no such thing as um, absolutely right or absolutely wrong. Right. Unless yeah. you're cutting the heads off or... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, or I'm, I'm messing talking. up the eye lines and yes, things exactly. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which often we do on purpose mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah, you sometimes know. you it's do a, You know, true. just... But you never cut their heads off. Try not to cut their heads yeah. off. Yeah, yeah. Gotta well, have some headroom. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> unless it's an extreme close-up. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I mean, there are there are there are rules. Mm -hmm. There are rules. You know, like, you know, if you're doing a close-up, you know, where to put the eyes. And, right. You know, and you know, it's. But those are almost self-explanatory. Yeah, and also at yeah. a certain point, you don't think about them. You're not trying to do that you because don't. it's internalized. No, you don't. Yeah, there's also a trillion things that you're looking at as a camera operator. Mm -hmm. You know, you're trying to. I mean, you, you're looking at all the technical things. You're looking at focus. If there's reflections or shadows mm -hmm. or booms or flags mm -hmm. or cables or you know, there's. I mean, the list is endless. Um, so you have to be very mindful always extremely mindful yeah. yeah yeah and then you know on top of that you um you'll, you'll often ask um you know if you'll often be asked if you know if the shot worked mm -hmm. and um you know and along with the myriad you know sort of technical things that you're looking at you you also have to make a an artistic judgment on mm -hmm. whether a shot worked or not and mm -hmm. um there's a lot to look at mm -hmm. i mean a lot of that also comes with experience mm -hmm. um you know or Hopefully you're working with a great first AC, so you don't mm -hmm. have to worry too much about focus. About the focus, yeah. <laughs> you know, and these days in digital, you know, with the di in the digital world, you know, yeah, you have a lot to of review. a lot of people can see focus. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's not just not just the camera operator, but <clears throat> certainly on film cameras, you have to look at focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned about um, 
one last final point I want to make is about uh, specifically with Dan Mendel, who mm-hmm. um, you say is the dream cinematographer mm-hmm. for, for a camera operator to work with. What can other cinematographers learn um, either from him or from you, you know, clearly about how to um, be a better collaborator for a camera operator and, and to, you know, create the best outcome? Well, I think it's, um, I'm not sure how to answer because I think you're, you've already said the word, which mm. I think is so important, is collaborator. Mm. <clears throat> it's, an, it's an overused word in the business and it, it can sound a bit cliche at times, but, but there is no better word to use. Um, it's such a collaborative business and, uh, and Dan is the ultimate collaborator. Mm. Um, you know, no one can do this alone. There's just too much going on. And um, there's, there's so many talented people on sets and for you not to be able to use them or to not use them to their full extent is, um, I think, is a massive mistake. And, uh, and I think you, you're leaving something on the table. Um, Dan, Dan has a very close relationship with, um, with standby painters more than any other DP that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's always getting them to... Um, take down surfaces, uh, paint things, um, wow. shine things up, wet things down, mm. you know, whatever. And um, change the way, <clears throat> change the reflective characteristics of the the environment yeah. around. Yeah, you know, know if there's a set wall that looks a bit flat, you know, mm-hmm. he'll say, um, you know, put some duck butter on that wall and, you know, make it make it nice and shiny wow. or, or mm. you know, add some texture to it or, or dirty it up or, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, wet it down, you know, just uh, just to just to add texture, you know, to, to, to the frame. And, uh, and, you know, Dan's, you know, wonderful at that. He's wonderful at giving people breaks. You know, he's wonderful at trusting other people. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's so talented as a, as, as a lighting cameraman, but he's also, he's also willing to give people a chance to express themselves. Mm-hmm which I think is, 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 is so important. And I, and I think it's so wonderful to, mm. you know, to be around someone that's allow that allows you to do that. You know, there's no pressure around Dan, you know, there's no pressure in, in thinking, Oh, I can't, you know, I don't want to do that because I might mm. get into trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no such thing as that's that good. for him. Then you have the freedom to you have the freedom and the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the, and the peace of mind knowing that if you try something or do something, you know, there's there's not going to be a repercussion right the only outcome is if it works then it you know leads yeah. to a better result exactly and if yeah. it doesn't work you go back to what you were doing or you change it yeah. cool yeah wow. yeah perfect yeah what a great way of working <laughs> couldn't be better yeah <laughs> colin thank you so much oh you i really bet. appreciate it oh no you bet that is all the the questions <laughs> i had and we're just under two hours so that's good there you go yeah you um, said you said about two hours did, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Colin Anderson, along with Evidence Cameras for supporting this episode. I'm Derek Stetler. If you gained value from our conversation, please share and subscribe to help grow the show. There's some great content planned that I'm really looking forward to. You can follow me and some of my creative work on Instagram at Derek. And feel free to message me there with comments or ideas. Thank you.